Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org. Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. As in most parts of our society, dogs are participating more and more in everyday life, and this includes the legal system. Now, if you have a chance to serve on a jury or have to be in a courtroom for another reason, you may find there's a dog in there with you. Now, how common is this, and what are the benefits of dogs in courtrooms? I want to welcome attorney Ellen O'Neill Stevens. She's the founder of Courthouse Dogs Foundation. Welcome to the program, Ellen. I'm delighted to be here. So, Ellen, there's actually a type of dog called a courthouse dog, and how are these dogs used in the legal system, and specifically in and around courts. The reason why this began is because we believe that this type of dog, which has the same training as an assistance dog, is able to promote justice with compassion in the legal system. What is the purpose of having a dog in a courtroom? To reduce trauma or stress experienced by people that are involved in legal proceedings. I was a deputy prosecuting attorney for 26 years in Seattle, Washington, and during the course of my career, I saw firsthand how people are emotionally damaged while participating in legal proceedings, and that they come out the other end um, much worse, oftentimes, than they were before they entered into the process. And so what I would see happening is that as a person was involved in this adversarial process, um, the process itself was causing additional emotional damage to them. Dogs reduce our stress. They lower our blood pressure, uh, increase oxytocin levels. And when people are around very calm dogs, they feel much calmer. So in a nutshell, when these very well-trained, calm dogs accompany vulnerable people when they have to testify in court or um, be involved in other legal proceedings that can be emotionally stressful, they are better able to engage in the process. Don't lawyers sometimes want to stress out people they're cross-examining? Well, you know what? When I first started off as a prosecuting attorney, I had watched all the TV shows and I had seen how defense attorneys and prosecutors cross-examined people. And the idea was that if you ask these very challenging questions and you put them under stress, somehow they will blurt out the truth. And that's really just a bunch of nonsense. What that actually does is shut people down. When you have to relive a traumatic experience in your life, then you start experiencing the same emotional, physical reactions that you had at the time of the incident, and you become overwhelmed. And when a person becomes overwhelmed, the first thing that impairs them is their ability to speak. And when you are, you know, the whole point of a trial is to hear from witnesses what happened so that a jury can decide guilt or innocence. And if one person has shut down another person, that doesn't mean that they're going to blurt out the truth. That means that they're going to be confused, overwhelmed, and impaired in their ability to tell the jury what happened. And when there is one of these calm dogs with them that they've established a bond with, they get the sense, the unconscious sense, because we have this very uh, strong relationships with dogs in particular, that they are safe. But Ellen, is having the dogs really a neutral force in the legal sense? I mean, couldn't their presence there influence the judge or jury in unwanted or unexpected ways? Well, that is a uh, legitimate concern of defense attorneys when they hear this. Um, But I want to say that our organization, the Courthouse Dog Foundation, um, advocates for these dogs to be available to either party that may become distressed during the course of legal proceedings. 
Now they have to show that they're, you know, that they're vulnerable to being overcome by their emotions to begin with. But if they are defense witnesses, even a defendant should be able to have access to the dog as much as prosecution witnesses. So that's number one, that um, it is a fair practice. And number two, these dogs are so well-trained that they can lie very quietly in the witness box without really being visible to the jurors. So the way we recommend this being done is that before the jury comes into the courtroom, the witness and the dog take their seat in the witness box, and the jurors come in, the witness testifies, and after the witness testifies, the jurors go back into the jury box and they leave. So although the jurors are told by the judge that there is a dog in the courtroom, they don't see that dog. And so they don't have those gut visceral reactions to the sight of a dog um, under those circumstances. So the way I like to think about this is that the dog assists the fact-finding process much like an interpreter does for someone who doesn't speak the same language as the jurors. Now, do both attorneys, the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney, have to agree to this? Well, of course, um, one party can object. Um, And then the judge has to have a hearing before uh, deciding whether or not this should be permissible. And what the judge will look at is whether or not this witness would, in fact, have a difficult time talking about what happened. So there is a process to make um, for the judge to make that decision. And by preventing the jurors from seeing the dog, that's a way to... um, mitigate any potential prejudice towards the defendant during that process. But I have to say, the first time that I saw this happen with the dog that I was uh, using to help two little girls who'd been sexually abused by their father testify in court, the defense attorney did not object to the dog being there. And much to my surprise, during cross-examination, She positioned herself on the other side of the dog. She pulled up a chair, sat down, and she and the seven-year-old girl would pet the dog while she was cross-examining them. And the result of this was, for the first time, this girl answered a question that the defense attorney gave to her. But um, the other benefit to this is that this was... Uh, far less traumatic for the child because what she saw in terms of the defense attorney was a nice woman that was petting the dog with her. But it also benefited the defense attorney because um, think how difficult it is to represent someone who is accused of sexually abusing a daughter. And when those jurors saw her be very kind and caring with this child, while she was doing her job, certainly that provided a more favorable opinion of her to them. Ellen, who owns these dogs? Uh, could my dog be a courthouse dog? No. These dogs, unless your dog is a graduate from an assistance dog organization that is a member of Assistance Dog International, your dog should not be a courthouse facility dog. These dogs are professionals. They are trained. They are purpose-bred. They have two years of training. Their handlers are trained intensively to handle these uh, dogs in in public areas. So these are special dogs um, that have been trained to do this work and have been selected because of their calm temperament. Ellen, very briefly, tell us about your organization, Courthouse Dogs. What do you do? Well, Courthouse Dogs Foundation, I am privileged um, to have uh, my partner, who is the uh, executive director of our foundation. She's a veterinarian, and I'm a prosecuting, a retired prosecuting attorney, so I like to say I'm courthouse and she's dogs. And what Celeste and I do is we uh, have a website that educates people about the benefits of having these dogs assist in this process, and then we travel all over the country and also internationally teaching legal professionals about how to incorporate these incredible dogs into legal matters. 
Attorney Ellen O'Neill Stevens, thank you so much. My pleasure. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for joining us on Animals Today. Each week, we explore the wide variety of new and important issues concerning the welfare and rights of animals, how people treat them, and where they fit in society. From whale protectors risking their own lives on the open seas to lawmakers fighting to pass legislation to assist animals to kids volunteering at their local shelter, Animals Today provides timely and in-depth analysis and interviews with experts and advocates from around the world. To listen, join us every week on this station, listen on iTunes, or go to animalstodayradio.com, where you can access and listen to all the prior shows. And like us on Facebook and share your views. Much of our financial support comes from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIanimals.org. So check them out. This is Dr. Lori, and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com, or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society, while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website again is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. So you and your family have decided to get a dog or cat. We think that's great. And we want to remind you to adopt your next companion animal instead of buying. That's because shelters have so many loving dogs and cats waiting for a home that it just doesn't make sense to buy a pet from a breeder or pet store. And sadly, over half of all animals that enter shelters are killed. That's millions per year. So when you adopt your pet from a shelter, most likely you really are saving a life. When you go to a shelter to adopt your new dog or cat, you will find many wonderful choices for your new family member. And please tell your friends and family to visit the shelter when they are ready to get a new dog or cat. Ask anyone. When you adopt an animal, you'll have a loyal friend for life. And you'll feel pretty good, too. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org and on Facebook. That's AIanimals.org. Hey folks, it's Danny here. I want to talk to you a little bit about our power grid. Now, it's no secret that the administration has literally declared war on the coal industry. And the result is that the cost of electricity is skyrocketing right past the record rates we already have. Now, ultimately, I believe these policies are going to create real shortages of electricity. It's like Obamacare, but with the power grid. And it gets worse. Experts say that our power grid continues to remain unprotected and vulnerable, which is why I want all of my listeners to be able to produce their own supply of electricity. Listen, I believe that it's time to prepare. You should always prepare and be prepared, especially with any coming problems concerning the power grid. So do what I did. Get a solar generator from Solutions from Science. They run quietly, emit no fumes, and produce an endless supply of electricity from the sun. Go to DanaSolarBackup.com to learn more. That's DanaSolarBackup.com. Use coupon code Dana to get a special half-price offer. DanaSolarBackup.com. Do you owe the IRS money? Do you have years of unfiled returns? Has the IRS garnished your wages or put a lien against your house? The IRS has the power to make you pay back what they claim you owe and will stop at nothing to collect. If you are losing sleep over your IRS tax problem, there is a solution. Call Signature Tax now. Speak with our professionals and feel the weight of your tax burden lifted from your shoulders. Call 800-859-9446 for your free and confidential analysis on ending your tax nightmare. We can help get your life back on track and give you the fresh start you deserve. 
Our A-plus BBB-rated tax resolution team has over 125 years of combined experience to get you the best deal possible while stopping the IRS dead in their tracks. Call Signature Tax now at 800-859-9446. Call 800-859-9446. Again, that's 800-859-9446. 800-859-9446. Welcome back to the show. You know, the other day was World Rabies Day, and Peter and I were talking about this, and we realized there are probably a lot of misconceptions about rabies. A few years ago, we spoke to one of the authors of the book, Rabid. You may not want to read 288 pages about rabies, but it was well-reviewed, and we really liked it. But we do get a little freaked out about rabies and the risk it may pose to us and to our dogs. In our backyard on some evenings at dusk, we see bats flying around and not sure why, but we just go inside when they come. Peter especially is afraid of being mistaken for moth and bitten. And then what do you do? And even though we wondered whether these flying shadows are really bats, maybe they're birds. About two months ago, Peter found a small dead one on our back patio. So we know they're real and they are here. Last year, a middle-aged woman from South Carolina died of rabies. That's really scary. So, like I said, the other day, September 28th, was World Rabies Day. So what do we need to know about rabies? Dr. Robert Reed is medical director of VCA Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage, California, and he returns to speak with us. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. Nice to be back. Rob, okay, we know rabies is a dangerous virus. Tell us a little bit about the rabies virus. Well, as you probably know, um, rabies has been around for, well, as far as we know, 4,000 years, at least as far as documentation goes. And it's a, it's a disease that, that's still strong after all that time. Um, it can affect any mammal, um, of course, even people. Um, it's transmitted through bite wounds primarily, it's passed in the saliva, and it's prevalent in our environment in, in wildlife, and as you've touched on in California, the, the main carriers are bats. Um, we don't see it, fortunately, in dogs and cats very often in this country because of public health efforts that began in the 1940s to control it largely through vaccination programs. So we're very fortunate that it's rare for us to encounter Uh, rabies in a dog or a cat or even another domestic animal and even more rare in people but it hasn't gone away after thousands of years it's still there it's still a risk and efforts to control it still continue and should and the untreated disease is pretty gruesome isn't it it is it's almost invariably fatal in people and in other species as well it causes progressive neurologic so typically robert you really don't know if the animals that bite you or attack you is rabid. So what are the steps one should take? Well, fortunately, our society has measures to address that. Um, every community has an animal control agent or agency uh, that will address that. And in fact, I think it's important if a person is bitten by a wild animal or even a dog or a cat and they don't know anything about it, Uh, to contact animal control, and and they have mechanisms in place to address that concern. Does it help to capture the animal if you can? It definitely does. Uh, Of course, anyone who does that should do it safely or perhaps even better should contact animal control and have them do it if that's a possibility um, so that the animal can be tested for rabies. Uh, And, of course, a a pet's vaccination status has a a large impact on how that situation would be handled. So if this does occur, the vaccine, it's called uh, post-exposure prophylaxis. How bad is that? Well, post-exposure rabies vaccination is not as bad as what we tend to think of. You know, historically, we worried about the shots in the belly and the painful injections that go on for weeks. And I don't really think that's that's applicable nowadays. The injections that are given are given into the muscle. I think they are painful. They cause a lot of soreness, and everyone would prefer to avoid them um, if they could, and they are expensive. Uh, But, of course, you know, the alternative of worrying about whether your exposure 
is going to lead to rabies or, of course, getting the disease is unthinkable in comparison. Talk about dogs and cats having rabies. How common is that in the U.S.? Well, it's not very common, and I'm more familiar with our own area, and it's been decades since uh, the Coachella Valley has had a reported case of rabies in a dog or a cat. It is still present in bats, and it is pop up every now and then in a bat, uh, but we haven't had a, a case that we know of in a dog or a cat for a long time. Now, the recommendations for unvaccinated dogs and cats who are possibly infected are, are pretty harsh, huh? Potentially. You know, I think the key thing to remember um, as a pet owner with, with regard to rabies and, and, and issues that come up like that is that the decision about what happens to your pet is going to be made by representatives of animal control agencies uh, as to whether the pet goes through a quarantine, how long the quarantine is. I think in very rare instances, euthanasia, but it's much more likely to be a quarantine situation and the type of quarantine and whatever decisions are made about the pet will be affected by the vaccine status. So it's really important that we maintain um, uh, current vaccines for rabies, against rabies in dogs and cats, even though our, the state of California does not require it in cats, it is required in dogs, currently is not required in cats, it's still recommended. So Dr. Reed, the vaccination is required in dogs. Is it safe? It, it is a safe vaccina uh, vaccination. You know, we, we don't really encounter reactions to rabies vaccine with any greater frequency than other vaccines, and it's extremely infrequent in dogs. And now in cats, you know, um, the question about rabies vaccination in cats um, has a little bit of a, a different nuance because cats don't respond exactly the same to vaccinations as dogs do and in the past have had some fairly unique types of reaction that can occur months or years down the road after the vaccination occurs. So the vaccine manufacturers have made some adjustments in the type of vaccines that they provide, and we now have alternatives for cat vaccinations against rabies that really don't present any, great, any greater risk than the vaccine for dogs, which is very low. And, um, and I think that the risk for rabies and for animal control-related problems, uh, especially through exposure to wildlife, um, outweigh the risks of the vaccine. And how often are we supposed to give the vaccine in dogs? To dogs in California, it's every three years. That's a regulation. Uh, the vaccine may have protection beyond that, but it's regulated to be given every three years in adult dogs. It's given once uh, in young dogs after the age of 12 weeks, and then that is repeated one year later, and then it's every three years. In cats, it depends on which vaccine you use. There are one-year and three-year vaccinations against rabies for cats. Very good. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you so much. You're welcome. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com, or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals how we treat them, and their place in society, while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website again is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier, too, without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. 
And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home. Cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors. The key is to provide attention, exercise, and a stimulating environment. Play with your cat. It's fun for both of you. You can hide toys around the house, too. Just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed. You can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic. Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Rita, you look upset. I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water given to him. You need to report this right away. What do you mean? Well, you should call Animal Services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is properly taken care of. Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number? Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion they need to be safe and healthy. If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, report it to animal services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference, and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Dana Lash here. Our freedom and independence is not free. Veterans and their families pay the price for your freedom and for mine. Veterans' families are many times unprepared to deal with what our warriors bring home. The pain, the nightmares, feelings of detachment, irritability, trouble concentrating, and sleeplessness. These are some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress. The Purple Heart Foundation would like to offer all of you out there, all of my listeners, the book Tears of a Warrior, a family story of combat by Janet and Anthony Seahorn as a free gift. Tears of a Warrior was written to educate families families and veterans about the symptoms of PTS and to offer strategies for living with the disorder. The book is free to anyone who would like a copy. All you pay is shipping. Go to purpleheartfoundation.org. That's purpleheartfoundation.org or call 800-935-9941. That's 800-935-9941. Order the free book or give a donation in honor of a veteran you know. You can donate a car or cash. All donations go directly to help veterans nationwide. 800-935-9941 or purpleheartfoundation.org. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. As we all marvel at the amazing pictures that a tiny spacecraft has sent to us from the farthest reaches of our solar system, it's a good time to think about all the ways we've benefited from space exploration, and might still in the future. Modern conveniences like cell phone cameras, scratch-resistant lenses for sunglasses, and water purification systems were all originally developed by NASA. Because of all the brilliant minds working there, it often seems like the only limit on what we can create is our own imagination. Unfortunately, one of the barriers to innovation is entirely man-made and unique to America, legal fear. Currently, a device invented by a former NASA engineer that could save lives by making it impossible to text, talk, or email on a cell phone while driving is being kept off the market, in large part because of fears about lawsuits. Let's be fair, there are actually many products that haven't made it to market because of concerns about the excessive litigation in America, and you would be amazed at what they can do. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamerica.org. Welcome back to the show. A few weeks ago, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals concluded that the EPA violated federal law when it approved the insecticide sulfoxiflor. And this is important because of its relationship to honeybees. And the uh, conclusion was that uh, the possible impact was not studied enough to make this uh, ruling. So we wanted to talk about uh, honeybees. And we are very pleased to have Michelle Colopy, who is program director of the Pollinator Stewardship Council Incorporated. Welcome, Michelle. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to uh, be here. Michelle, give us a little background on what led to the Court of Appeals making this ruling? Uh, the the uh, Sufoxaflor case that we filed in the Ninth Circuit Court, we addressed that simply because it is a highly toxic pesticide to bees. When uh, EPA registered the pesticide in their appro- own approval document, they stated they didn't have enough research on long-term studies 
that the research that was done and submitted by the manufacturer only uh, encompassed 14 days in the life, life of this little organism, and that EPA acknowledged it was going to be highly toxic and harmful to honeybees. So we basically took EPA's own words and we went to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and we asked the judge, could you please review the registration documents because EPA is saying they did not have enough information yet they still went ahead and registered this pesticide. Now, sufoxiflor is a class within the neonicotinoid uh, class of pesticides, which is highly toxic to bees. It's a systemic pesticide that when it is applied as a foliar application uh, in any manner, actually, if it's a soil drench, if it's a seed coating, that it is exuded through the pollen and nectar of the plant. Yeah. If the insecticide comes up through the pollen and nectar of the plant and the bee is exposed to this highly toxic pesticide. So we asked the Ninth Circuit Court to review EPA's registration, and they did review it. We were quite pleased with the outcome that the judges agreed with, actually, EPA's own words. They did not have enough research. So that sufoxiflor registration has been vacated Mm -hmm. and remanded back to EPA so that within 45 days after the Ninth Circuit Court rulings to Foxiflor will be illegal to use until the manufacturer completes new studies. Um, so, so they kind of have to redo some of that registration process. And are you confident that even when that's done, it still will be deemed to be not a safe agent? Well, it, certainly we know that it's be toxic. The way that uh, EPA mitigates risk of so many toxic pesticides, because neonicotinoid pesticides are not the only pesticide that is toxic to bees. There are thousands of highly toxic pesticides to bees. They mitigate the risk of harm through the label, Mm -hmm. through how the product is used. The issue then becomes of the standard practices beyond the label direction. Uh, so that is sometimes the biggest weakness is people don't follow direction. Um, the products are used too much instead of truly when there is a pest uh, in the field. Yeah. So certainly, like in uh, veterinary science, you're not giving an antibiotic to the cat every day because then the cat builds up a resistance and then so do any of the um, viruses and things that might infect the cat. So it's the same with insecticides. You don't want to apply them prophylactically because then you build up resistance. But that is what is happening with so many pesticides. The insects are building up resistance, so we create these stronger and stronger pesticides but when we continue to use them prophylactically, mm. that's when resistance builds up. So while sufoxiflor is a tool for some tests when there is a major outbreak and that farmer needs to protect their crop. Gotcha. However, there are ways to do it when you, where you can protect the pollinator and eradicate the pest. And it's communication, it's following the directions on the label, but truly using it when there is a pest. Last year, there was a lot of talk in the popular press, and we covered this also about bee populations under pressure and really dying off. Is that process still happening? It is. And certainly, you know, there is, there's so many sound bites you'll get in the media, whether there's a bee catastrophe or a bee Armageddon. And bees are suffering and have been suffering from exposure to pesticides since pretty much we've developed pesticides, but they have also been suffering from a loss of forage or pesticides uh, tainting their forage. They're also suffering under pests and pathogens. And when you pile on on any creature four different things that are impacting their immune system, when you throw on one extra thing, their immune system can't cope. So bees have been able to cope with the varroa mite, which was introduced in the 80s, they have been able to deal with, and they come to kind of a a happy threshold level of where they can survive and the mite might still be uh, bothering them. But when you throw on pesticides and poor nutrition, then the varroa and the diseases that varroa mite spreads can impact the bees 
much more greatly. So if we could reduce our pesticide exposure on our pollinators mm -hmm. and increase their forage and make that quality forage, our bees would be so much healthier. We are almost at a status quo where we are breeding the same level of bees. Bees don't live very long. They're about a 90-day insect. But they're constantly breeding new bees to replace the ones that die off. The issue becomes when we can't replace the bees fast enough in a colony. So that if you have an acute kill of bees because they're pollinating a crop and pesticides were applied during the bloom on the crop and it kills the adult foraging force, then you've cut off a third of the population of that hive. Yeah. These are the stressors the bees are under. They're under such tremendous stressors. So there is no one thing causing their demise. There is no one pesticide causing problems for them. It's a combination of pesticide and uh, diseases that is, and lack of quality nutrition that is impacting honeybees so greatly. So has the decreased population affected the production of food? I mean, people, many people don't realize how important the bees are in bringing food to their table. Are we seeing an impact uh, yet? Um, not yet. We, we have been maintaining a status quo for about six years or so. When uh, the neonicotinoid pesticides did come on the market, the bees started to encounter them slowly but surely across many crops. And now the, the neonics are used on so many crops in the, in the bees' environment. And this systemic pesticide is just this kind of extra whammy because the pesticide is exuded through the pollen and nectar of the plant. So we're maintaining the status quo right now. And it, it really just, it depends on what happens in one crop. There was in 2014, there was this huge bee kill in almonds uh, due to actually a tank mix of a, of a variety of pesticides. There was an insecticide, there was a fungicide, uh, and they were combined together and sprayed in an orchard. We lost 80,000 bee colonies. Mm, yeah. And what happened then is what happened in almonds affected the next crop because there were less bees to pollinate that next crop. I think it went to apples and then cherries. So we have to keep in mind that if we damage bees in one crop, we reduce the amount of honeybees to pollinate the next crop. So we are maintaining this very tight, narrow status quo that if we would suddenly affect and kill off 200,000 or 500,000 hives in one or two crops, it will greatly impact the rest of the crops in the remaining growing season. So it's, we don't want to be at that tight uh, a supply with our honeybees. So when one farmer needs bees for a crop, that farmer needs to remember those bees need to stay healthy in his crop so the next farmer has healthy bees to pollinate the next crop. Yeah. What is pollinator stewardship? That's part of your organization's name. What, what, what does that mean? Well, certainly pollinator stewardship is protecting and being good stewards of all of the pollinators, not just honeybees, but our native bees, our butterflies. We've all heard how the monarch butterflies are suffering now due to a loss of uh, forage, a loss of milkweed, a loss of food along their migratory routes from Canada to, uh, from Mexico to Canada. So it is being good stewards and realizing that all of the creatures, especially at the bottom of the food chain, the insects especially, which actually support so much of the rest of the food chain, that we must be good stewards and make sure that they have food, that they have habitat, and that they can do the job they are here to do, which for pollinators, it is pollinating one-third of humans' food supply, as well as pollinating our wildlands, pollinating the food for our animals, whether it's our grazing animals, um, wild animals, they are integral to a balanced ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So, And it's not just insects. It's also hummingbirds. Uh, some bats are also pollinators. So we must protect and be good stewards to realize we can all coexist. We can protect our crops from pests and protect pollinators. We can protect our pollinators and protect public health from mosquito-borne diseases. 
we can do all of this if we work together, communicate with each other, and realize that we need to be good stewards of the ecosystem so that there is that balance for the health of the ecosystem and our food supply. Michelle Colopy, thank you very much for explaining all that to us. Very educational, and uh, we appreciate the good information. Well, thank you. It's wonderful talking with you, and I hope your uh, listeners enjoy learning about pollinators, and they can always check out our website at pollinatorstewardship.org. We have a lot of information on how individuals can help pollinators as well. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for joining us on Animals Today. Each week, we explore the wide variety of new and important issues concerning the welfare and rights of animals, how people treat them, and where they fit in society. From whale protectors risking their own lives on the open seas to lawmakers fighting to pass legislation to assist animals to kids volunteering at their local shelter, Animals Today provides timely and in-depth analysis and interviews with experts and advocates from around the world. To listen, join us every week on this station, listen on iTunes, or go to animalstodayradio.com, where you can access and listen to all the prior shows. And like us on Facebook and share your views. Much of our financial support comes from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIanimals.org. So check them out. This is Dr. Lori, and thanks for listening. Hey folks, it's Dana here. I want to talk to you a little bit about our power grid. Now, it's no secret that the administration has literally declared war on the coal industry. And the result is that the cost of electricity is skyrocketing right past the record rates we already have. Now, ultimately, I believe these policies are going to create real shortages of electricity. It's like Obamacare, but with the power grid. And it gets worse. Experts say that our power grid continues to remain unprotected and vulnerable, which is why I want all of my listeners to be able to produce their own supply of electricity. Listen, I believe that it's time to prepare. You should always prepare and be prepared, especially with any coming problems concerning the power grid. So do what I did. Get a solar generator from Solutions from Science. They run quietly, emit no fumes, and produce an endless supply of electricity from the sun. Go to DanaSolarBackup.com to learn more. That's DanaSolarBackup.com. Use coupon code Dana to get a special half-price offer. DanaSolarBackup.com. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. For millions of baseball fans who attend big league games each year, the possibility of catching a foul ball is one of the attractions of the game. According to one study, as many as 53,000 foul balls are caught by happy fans each year. However, if lawyers who just filed a class action lawsuit against Major League Baseball have their way, a lot fewer fans will be leaving games with a souvenir ball. Under the lawsuit, all ballparks, including the historic Wrigley Field in Chicago and Fenway Park in Boston, would be required to extend protective netting from behind home plate all the way to the foul poles in left and right field. The lawyers argue that warnings about foul balls printed on tickets, posted around the ballparks, and mentioned over the PA system are not enough. Let's be fair, serious injuries do happen, and baseballs have been flying into the stands for decades, even before Babe Ruth was playing. But do we really want a policy like this that affects millions of baseball fans to be decided by one lawsuit? Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamerica.org. Not available in California, Louisiana, and Virginia. Listeners, do you have startup capital and want to invest in a booming business with incredible profit and growth potential? The opportunity is now because Fresh Healthy Vending, the number one healthy vending franchise in North America, is looking for a few business-savvy, healthy-minded people right here in the local area to become Fresh Healthy Vending franchise owners. We're growing so fast that we've had hundreds of new franchise owners in the last few years alone. Now you can join them. This area has a huge demand for Fresh Healthy organic snacks on the go, and that's exactly what you'll be selling with your Fresh Healthy Vending machine. We've already identified prime high-traffic locations that are perfect for healthy vending machines. Now we just need the right people to join our franchise network and help Fresh Healthy Vending continue to boom. If this sounds like you, go to readyforfresh.com today and enter code 1414. We'll send you a free owner information kit. As an added bonus to new franchise owners, we'll also pay half the franchise fees. Hurry, this offer is limited. Just go to readyforfresh.com and enter code 1414. That's readyforfresh.com, code 1414. Now I want to say hi to Matt Ellerbeck. 
He is a salamander advocate and conservationist. He refers to himself as the salamander man, and we refer to him that way, too. He really has dedicated his uh, career and his life to informing and educating us about salamanders and telling us why they're so important in the ecosystem and why we should care more about them. Hi, Matt. Hi. How are you tonight? Uh, We're just fine. And you contacted uh, us at the show here and wanted to tell us about something the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources is planning that uh, we need to know about. So let us know. Yes. So as you mentioned, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources currently has tentative plans to turn one of their flooded reservoirs at the Prairie Recreation Area into a potential parking lot. Um, Now, these reservoirs are home to a very unique population of tiger salamanders because most tiger salamanders and many other species of salamander, for that matter, they start off when they're young in sort of a tadpole phase, just like frogs, and they have big external gills, so they're totally aquatic, but then they change or metamorphose into land animals and then leave the water and head off into the woodlands. But these ones in this particular area actually stay in their aquatic phase, which does happen occasionally with tiger salamanders, but it does make them a very special and unique population of animals. And if those reservoirs are drained and certainly converted into a parking lot, then unfortunately those very special salamanders uh, will lose their habitat and, and certainly die. So what I'm asking people to do is if you go on SaveTheSalamanders.com and you just scroll down right on the front page, uh, you'll see a headed line that says, Urgent Item, Help the Rare Guild Tiger Salamanders. And there's a couple links there where people can write in to the Department of Natural Resources and uh, sign a petition. So I hope that all the animal lovers that are listening will take a minute to speak up for these salamanders and politely ask the DNR uh, that they should look into protecting this area instead of converting it so we can keep those unique salamanders um, and their their habitat in a healthy state. Thanks, Matt Ellerbeck. Thank you uh, for joining us again and giving us this important uh, information. Thank you so much for having me. I now want to welcome Dr. Colleen Hines from Grafton Hills College, and she uh, let us know that she is putting on, along with uh, members of her department, the Herbivore Festival uh, here in California. Hi, Colleen. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Okay. So tell us about your festival that you're putting on. So um, our department, which is Kinesiology and Health at Crafton Hills College, is putting on the Herbivore Festival. And the Herbivore Festival is a plant-based festival. The, uh, the idea of the festival is to um, educate and empower people to adopt a plant-based diet and to provide them with the tools to stick with it. Uh, Going to have a lot of fun and festivities there today, which is uh, Sunday, this Sunday, October 4th. Oh, this Sunday. Oh, that's great. And what, what sort of things are going to be going on? We're going to have um, a lecture area, so we're going to have lectures all day long from 12 until 5 o'clock that are featuring a variety of different topics, um, focusing some on um, the healthful diet benefits of a plant-based diet. They're going to talk about the environmental benefits and, of Mm -hmm. course, the benefits to animals. We're going to have cooking demos, so it makes it practical for you to be able to follow a plant-based lifestyle, some of the things you can do at home. We're going to have an activity area as well, so that way we want to encourage physical activity. We'll have fun things like yoga and Zumba and Pilates and Tai Chi. We're going to have a Paladin garden demonstration. We're going to have a whole kid zone, so we'll have the face painting, um, which will be cruelty-free, vegan face paint, bounce houses, um, and we have over 115 vendors, which are um, bringing in foods for people to try, snacks. Um, There's different uh, local restaurants from the area that have completely plant-based diet foods. Um, There's going to be cruelty-free cosmetics, clothing, so really a little bit of everything. Okay. So where and when? It is at Crafton Hills College, which is in Yukaipa. Yep. And that is on 11711 Sin Canyon Road. And that is going to be on Sunday, October 4th from 12 to 5 p.m. Yeah. Rain or shine. Yeah, rain or shine. That sounds great. And just to reiterate, lots of uh, good food's going to be there. 
there's going to be a ton of food. We have over 15 uh, different restaurants that are from local area. Um, yep. You know, Redlands, Ukaipa, Palm Desert, Riverside, and they are all completely vegan restaurants, and they're coming and cooking. Right. And they're also going to provide samples and things as well. Um, so, yeah, there's going to be tons of completely vegan plant-based food. <laughs> and the event is free. Um, the event is completely free. Yep. yep. Fabulous. The event is free. The parking is free. All the lectures, cooking demos, activities are totally free. And the bounce house is even free. Oh, cool. <laughs> Thank you, Colleen. Good luck. Th- Thank you so much, Peter. I really appreciate it. Lori, did you see that sweet video of the juvenile elephant getting rescued? Yes. Was that wonderful or what? That was really, really great. This happened in southern India. And there's this... A two-year-old elephant, so rather small, bigger than you, uh, stuck in this abandoned well. It looked like a big, muddy hole and just separated from his family and couldn't couldn't get out, was struggling terribly, really agitated. And uh, then the video starts and you see the the locals, uh, sort of hundreds of them around around this pit, looking at this this elephant. So then they start digging a ramp. They're trying to extend this hole so that the elephant can crawl out or get pulled out. And then they bring in the heavy equipment. That's not pictured in the video, but you see this tractor. So they build this ramp, and then they then they get a rope around the back of this elephant, and they're guiding the elephant out, right? And and he's trying and slipping, and you don't know if he's just about to roll back. And he finally finally makes it out and he rolls onto the onto the ground to the solid ground and then he writes himself and then you just see all the locals scattering because they know that this elephant now could really crush them even though he's a little two-year-old and it's really funny to see a wave of people running away they're happy but they uh they've been close to elephants before so they know to get out of the way did this elephant reunite himself or herself with the you know it's not clear and it's not clear whether the elephant fell in and then yeah. they forgot about it. It's, it's not clear, yeah. but the elephant is, is uh, survived and is fine, and it was really a sweet little rescue there. It's my so. favorite YouTube of the week. Thank yes. you. Yep, you Thanks, Peter. And thank you for listening to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other being sharing our planet, the animals. Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org. Every day in the United States, 70,000 puppies and kittens are born. Unfortunately, there are not enough homes for all these cats and dogs. As a result, they end up being neglected, abandoned, or euthanized in shelters. In fact, millions of healthy, loving, and adoptable pets are killed in our shelters every year. On average, more than half of animals that enter shelters get euthanized. However, there is good news and two powerful ways you can help this problem. First, make sure to have your dogs and cats fixed, even before they have one litter. That is a good way to reduce overpopulation. And second, when you want a new pet, make sure to adopt him from a shelter instead of buying him from a pet store or a breeder. When you adopt, you really save a life, and that makes everybody very happy. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org.